Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, that is our cry, that is our plea, to let us be known by our love. And so what a privilege it is to come and to seek more earnestly how to do that, how more intentionally to love you with heart, soul, and mind, and to love neighbor as ourself. Enrich this time, God, with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Wow, that was awesome. Man, I loved it. Uh, really, really great. At least for me, I'm here. I get to hear it live. I know it's uh, different, but you guys get to hear it in your pajamas. And so everybody's got uh, an advantage on some level. And, and you know what's fun? We've been uh, kicking around this idea for a while. I've got this iPad with me today. Because, you know, when you're, when you're leading worship for an empty sanctuary, um, sometimes you just need a little bit more affirmation, right, that the things that you're doing are are somehow being well-received. And when you have these wonderful volunteers that you already got a chance to observe leading us this morning, be it Mr. Kevin with the children's message or uh, Johnny and Matt and Sarah leading us in worship and Ryan, obviously the glue that holds it together, Kathy doing um, uh, announcements and everything. There's just a lot of teamwork that's going on here. And so I'd love for you uh, to, to join with me and showing your appreciation. This is part of why we brought this iPad along is because now I've got sound effects that I can add to our services this morning. So uh, would you just go ahead and clap a little bit for these wonderful volunteers, see that? Can you hear that at home, right? See, now we've got, that's a dangerous tool for a a pastor to have up here because I can control (laughs) laughter and applause whenever we need it. And so I might have fun with that, not just this week, but in the future weeks. Um, Truly grateful for the wonderful team uh, that gets to, to come up here each and every week to help provide worship. Hope you guys do as well. So uh, I want to begin by sharing a story, and I think most of you are aware of this. I can't remember the level of detail that I've gone into this in the past, but I think most of you are aware that when I was in college, I was a part of a fraternity and, and got to experience the whole fraternity lifestyle. I was the frat guy, if you will, and there's a lot of stereotypes and a lot of, uh, I guess, different ideas of the reputations that coincide with being uh, in the fraternity life. And I would tell you, after living through it and experiencing myself, most of those stereotypes and reputations are true. Uh, and they're more or less pretty accurate. Now, I will say there's some variety from uh, how different fraternity lives uh, or experiences might unfold from one campus to the next, you know, different cultures, different variables. And one of the things that I felt like was maybe not unique, but definitely specific to the fraternity life at OU was the living accommodations. So at OU, the fraternity houses were pretty, pretty large, three-story houses that also included a basement. So you had four levels uh, that, that you kind of had a chance to, to live within. You had uh, the upperclassmen, juniors and seniors living on the third floor, sophomores living on the second floor. The first floor was kind of a common dining hall area, and then the basement was uh, entertainment, right? It's where we had chapter meetings and a lot of different uh, games, entertainment down there. So it was a pretty pretty extensive, uh, I guess, living accommodation. You could fit up to 70 people in that house, living in that house. And one of the reasons that made it such an entertaining place to live is research has shown and has proven pretty extensively that uh, the male species, by the time they reach the college age, reach the pinnacle, reach the peak of stupidity, right? That's true. (laughs) Right, okay, thank you. Uh, they reached the peak of stupidity. And so when you put all those guys together, 70 in one home, uh, you see incredible expressions of this. So for example, one of our favorite pranks 
that you saw in fraternity houses. The seniors or juniors that were living up on the third floor, they would often get a coat hanger or a long stick, something along those lines, and they would reach out their window. They had one little window in their room, and they would reach out and they'd look down, and they would use that coat hanger or that stick to tap on the window that was on the second floor but directly beneath them. And they'd create this like irritating noise to try to bug the people that were living below them. And as soon as the person on the second floor opened their window to see what was going on and would look up, the person on the third floor had a bucket of water ready for them and would pour it on their face as soon as they looked up. It was a common prank. It was great. It was wonderful. And it just so happened that on one particular occasion, this prank kind of got out of hand. Uh, At this time, on one particular day, uh, there was, I was a sophomore, I was living on the second floor, and there was a, a girl in my life that I had taken interest in. Uh, her name was Jennifer Hoffines. You now know her as Jennifer Smith. And it was early in our relationship, and so I was still like trying to impress her. You know, I was still trying to play it really cool and casual and be like, you know, what's going on? How you doing? You know, just being, being a little bit more reserved in my approach because I didn't want to mess it up. And so she's over at, uh, at the house, and we're hanging out in my room, and we're sitting there talking when all of a sudden we hear just this eruption of screams and yells and chants, not, not of like fear or anger, but of excitement and like just all sorts of entertainment and celebration. And so what had happened, what we, what we came to discover is that apparently uh, somebody had performed this prank on the third floor. They had poured a bucket of water on somebody living on the second floor looking out their window. And whoever, I guess, was the recipient of this prank on this particular day didn't take too kindly to it and decided to retaliate. So they filled up a bucket of water, went up to the third floor, knocked on that person's door, and as soon as they opened the door, threw the bucket of water on them. And this really became as this catalyst of this epic water war that took place. Everybody started joining in, third floor versus second floor, and this prank that was designed to take place outside the house all of a sudden came inside the house, and it was off the charts. There was even a moment where somebody on the second floor had gone outside and gotten the hose, pulled it inside, and was spraying people in the hallway and in the stairwells. Okay, it was just beyond stupid. And so Jennifer and I hear all this commotion, and we go to the door, and as I open my door and I look out, I see one of my friends, Dave Augenbaugh, who's one of the the larger guys, you know, this big burly guy, running full speed down the hallway, and with every step, water is just splashing because there's so many puddles inside the house, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, carrying a bottle, a bucket of water, getting ready to go get somebody. And so I'm watching this unfold, and I'm not kidding, everything within me wanted to go join in the fun, right? Like every instinct and impulse was to leave Jennifer and just go participate in this water war. And you could almost see in her face that she could recognize the conflict going on within me. And so she looked at me, and she's like, you know, you can go play if you want to, you know, trying to give me permission. Uh, but I, I restrained and, and I stayed reserved and I stayed with Jennifer, um, but it was, it was not an easy decision. Now, one of the things that I find so fascinating about that story and in that memory in particular is that if you were to take just your standard college male, right, 20-year-old guy, if, if he's by himself, he's not going to stop and all of a sudden decide, you know what, I think I'm just going to throw a bucket of water down the hallway, right? Like, that's not going to happen. But you throw in a couple of friends into the equation, one or two people that might laugh that might tell a story the next day, then all of a sudden this becomes pretty tempting. In fact, I came across this article that was written by NPR back in 2011 that, that uh, really looked at the maturation process and it indicated that a 20-year-old male is 50% more likely to do something risky if he knows one or two friends is watching. 
right? And so it's this, it's this impulse that, man, this is going to get a reaction. And, and so the article itself was really interesting because it was pointing to the maturation process in the brain. The premise was we have said as a society that the age of 18 is what we typically define as being a mature adult. When in reality, the brain is still developing. You're still working through how to make correct and reasonable decisions, and that a more appropriate age would be the age of 25. That was the premise of the article. Now, the reason I was reading this article and the reason I was thinking about this particular story is because this passage that we're going to look at today paints pictures for us of both what is immature and mature. And so with that prompt, I started thinking of those examples in my own life, and it was pretty easy to think of examples of immaturity. I would imagine you could do the same. If, if I say that word and you start thinking of examples or situations that remind you of immature behavior, they're probably pretty easy to come up with. But to me, for some reason, and maybe you're like me, maybe not, when I started thinking about maturity, it was a little bit harder to come by. Like, I, I know what it means, but to just immediately picture an example of, oh, that's, that's great, maturity was harder, which, which might imply that it's a little bit more rare it's a little bit of a more unique characteristic, but it is incredibly important. And part of what we're going to see today is that the, the need for maturity can't be understated. And, and here's why. When you think about being in a situation of difficult circumstances, maybe, maybe you find yourself in a crisis, a hardship, a, a tragedy of some sort, you often look to somebody, be it in a work capacity, in a, in a work environment, or maybe within your family, someone that's going to allow you to to uh, trust in their ability to navigate that process. You wanna know somebody that is gonna have a steady hand, somebody that's gonna be well-reasoned and wise. You, you want somebody to look to that you know is going to emulate and practice maturity. Right? That's what we need in a time of difficulty and crisis. And I, and I say that not from the standpoint of individual leadership, but from a global perspective. Right? That right now we are literally in a, a global crisis as we face this this pandemic, and what the world needs is for the voice of the church collectively to not be a presence of, of impulsivity or irrationality or instability or immaturity, but to be a presence of stability, of reason, of strength, to be a voice and a presence of maturity. That's what we need right now. And so what I want us to do is, is to recognize the need for it and approach the scriptures and think to ourselves, what does that look like? How do we pursue it, and what is the picture of maturity? And, and the hints and the tease to that passage that, that Paul points to today is that ultimately that picture is a picture of somebody that knows what it means to speak the truth in love. And so that's what we're going to look at in greater focus today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 creates a tremendous amount of focus on the church, right? The first three chapters have given us this elaborate and, and poetic display of the mystery of God being revealed in Jesus Christ. Chapter four begins to focus in on the church and how the church is such an important context for that mystery to be revealed in practice. Now, what we see in these first 17 verses is that the two defining marks of the church that Paul is gonna emphasize here are marks of unity and maturity. So we looked at unity last week in the first six verses. This week, as we read verses seven through 16, we're going to see a much more focused approach to the importance of maturity. Specifically, how do we pursue that maturity, and then what does it look like? So if you have your Bibles, let's read along together, starting in verse 7, chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 
This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we're going to take this passage pretty much uh, incrementally. We're just going to kind of work through it because I love the way that Paul allows one point to build upon the next. And so the, the transitional statement that we see here in verse 7 is a reminder of grace. It says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace has already been mentioned numerous times in this letter. In chapter 2, we get this reference to saving grace. You have been saved by grace. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast, right? That, that's the, the introduction to grace that we see in chapter two. So once again, we're being reminded of grace. This, this tone in chapter four is slightly different. It's not so much an emphasis on the saving nature of grace, but the equipping nature of grace, which we'll get to a little bit later. But, but make no mistake, it's still grace, right? It, it's grace that has been given. We have this, this word as Christ apportioned it, right? As he measured it out to give to the body of Christ. And so what we see here is a picture of Christ giving these gifts of grace. And so one of the things I want to make sure that we don't run past as we kind of pursue what this maturity looks like is to remember the importance of grace, that grace is ultimately a gift. And when we consider what it means to receive a gift, we should be reminded that there's really only one appropriate response, correct? When you're given a gift, what do you say? You say thank you, right? That, that's how you respond to a gift. And so what that teaches us is that one of the most important characteristics that we need to emulate as the, as the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus, is a life of gratitude, always. No, no matter our circumstances, no matter our situations. Right? So, so we find ourselves in a time where we're being told all the things we can't do. Right? Don't go to work, don't get in large gatherings, don't convene in public, uh, don't, don't go here, don't go there. All these different things that could create a sense of frustration, of resentment could, can start to make us stir crazy. But the reality is, is that no matter what it is that we face, grace is always there, which means we should always be living a life of gratitude. How is that going for you? Right? Are you waking up each day truly grateful for who God is and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus? Right? We have to carry that posture of gratitude. Now from here, uh, Paul leads us into Psalm 68.18. That, that's the the passage that he references. And if you were to go and flip to Psalm 68, 18, you'd see that it doesn't exactly match with the way that it's written in Ephesians 4. Uh, the, the most noticeable difference comes in that the fact that Psalm 68, 18 actually says that he who received gifts from his people, whereas Paul presents it here in chapter 4 as he who gives gifts to his people. And so why the discrepancy? Well, one, line of thinking and theories that Psalm 68, 18 is known to typically refer to 
Moses. And so that reference of receiving gifts for his people, from his people, is often referring to Moses receiving the law. Uh, but what we see here is that Paul then is likely taking Psalm 68:18 and, and is not referring to Moses, but offering a new interpretation where Moses isn't the central figure, but Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't receive gifts, he gives them. Right, so that's the point of emphasis, is that Christ is the, the giver in this scenario. And you also have this explanation that Paul kind of um, uh, digresses into with a greater explanation of the contrast between ascending and descending. Right, so the psalm references an ascension on high. And so once again, Paul is trying to remind us that, that we follow an ascended Christ. And I think that's very important for you and I to remember as well. Right, that, that we don't gather together to remember some noble gesture of some carpenter from thousands of years ago, right, who, who died on a cross sacrificially. What we believe is that that Jesus of Nazareth was not only resurrected, but ascended to the heavenly realms. That's what Paul says earlier in this letter. He, he is seated in the heavenly realms with all rule and authority and power and dominion that exists above all else. So, so what Paul is trying to emphasize here is the ascended Christ. Now, he complements that with this reference to descending, right? If he ascended, he also descended to the earthly regions. Now, here's what that is probably not referring to. I don't believe that that's referring to some idea that Jesus descended into hell or to Sheol or to Hades. That, that does become, at some point, a, a belief within church history. And there are other passages that kind of give weight to that, but that this is not one of them in my estimation. What, what is more likely going on here is one of two interpretations. That he either is referring to, he being Paul, is referring to the descending of Jesus as the incarnation, right? The, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He descended to the earthly regions, right? It's the incarnation. Um, another interpretation of what Paul's referring to here is that after Jesus ascended, right, after he was taken up into heaven, he descended again through the Spirit of God to give gifts to his people, right, gifts to the church. And, and so those are the two common interpretations. Uh, you can take your pick. I, I see the legitimacy in both. I kind of lean towards the second because of the context of what we're reading about the gifts that are given to the body of Christ. Uh, but, but either way, the real point of emphasis here is that Jesus has the authority to give these gifts. He, he is seeking to fill the universe. You think about the mystery that Paul has talked about in chapter one. All things are gonna culminate in Christ. And so as the church is, is forming and evolving and moving, Jesus sits with that supreme seat, the ascended Christ, to fill the earth as he determines, extending these gifts uh, in this, this grace as he is apportioned it, right? So that, that's the point of emphasis, which leads to a focused list of gifts that we have here in chapter four. What, what does he reference in these, these list of gifts? Uh, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, right? And, and so if you think about uh, some of these roles, we've already seen apostles and prophets mentioned in chapter two, right? When, when Jew and Gentile are being brought together, they, they form a new building where Jesus is the capstone, right? Everything's growing towards him. And then what does it tell us though? They are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Right, so you already have an understanding of the role that the apostles and prophets have in revealing the mystery of Jesus Christ. But you also now have evangelist, which is a term that's gonna 
really kind of point to this idea of missionaries taking the, the message of this mystery of Christ to new villages, new regions, new towns. You, you have uh, pastors, which, which is a word that means to shepherd, right? To nurture, to cultivate, to care for. You have teachers who are obviously going to be able to point to the words of Jesus, the instructions of Jesus, the sound doctrine that's so necessary for the church. So, so you have a, a, a lot of things that are being used here. And, and the shift that's taking place that, that I love about this is we have just gone from the corporate picture of the church to the individual, right? So, so first six verses, this, this thrust in unity and the importance of unity is look, we're all in this together, right? It, it, is, it is a collective corporate body. But now what Paul is saying, each of you plays a part, right? Yes, we all need to be united, but everyone has a role, a gift that God has given to them. And so one of the questions you have to be asking yourself is, am I using the gifts that God has given me for the body of Christ? Am I, am I even aware of the gifts that he has given me? This is a great passage that teaches us and reminds us that, that being a part of the church, the body of Christ, this is not a place for observation, right? You don't just <clears throat> come in and sit and watch. This is participatory. This, this is, you get involved, you contribute. Again, that, that's important, and I hope every single one of you hears it. Right? Because we're, we're hearing consistently put, put work on hold, put school on hold, put uh, the economy on hold. Let me remind you, you cannot put the church on hold. And so your role within the church isn't put on hold. You need to be actively using your gifts. Right? And, and so in order for you to answer that question, I, I want to make sure that we're reading Ephesians 4 in a greater New Testament context. Right? Because this is a focused list that he's given us in Ephesians 4. But there are many other passages that speak to a more robust list of giftings. And so let me refer to a few of them. Romans 12, right, is, is, a, is a first place we're going to look. Then we're gonna also going to look at 1 Corinthians 12. And so you'll notice some similarities, but you'll also notice a different uh, grouping of gifts that, that Paul refers to here in his letter to the church in Rome. Picking up in verse 3 in chapter 12, Paul says, For by the grace given me, <clears throat> I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. That sounds very similar to what we saw in Ephesians, that he apportioned out these gifts of grace. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so we in Christ, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Right? So now you have a much more uh, comprehensive list, but you have those same themes, that, that those gifts are being used to create this unity. Right? So it's, it's unity through diversity, Right? It's the, this idea that you're not being brought together in unity because you all want to conform and do the same thing. But here, as Paul says in Romans, it's like a body. Each part of the body has a particular function, a different role, but it's still part of one body. And so it's for this, this opportunity for each of us to recognize the uniqueness that we each carry to bring that giftedness to the body of Christ. You, you see a similar tone in a more comprehensive list in 1 Corinthians 12. Starting in verse 7, 
Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Again, unity through diversity. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So I hope that those two passages help remind you of the variety of gifts that God gives to the church. And so each of us needs to seek out what what is it that he has given me. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this as you seek to answer that question. The first thing I would say is that I, I personally don't believe that we're given one gift to practice in one lifetime, right? So You've been given the gift of teaching, and you only teach for your whole life. Uh, I believe that we have different seasons, different times, where certain giftings are are more pronounced than others, uh, that we may have uh, a culmination of numerous different types of gifts, not just one. And so I think that's something for you to keep in mind as you try to discern this in your own life and in your own context. But I also want to offer a word of caution this morning, because part of what happens, and I think this is just human characteristic, is that is that we have a tendency to, to somewhat almost instinctively rank giftings and talents, right? And so we'll, we'll see them in others, and when we begin to do that, that creates both pride and envy, right? So, so think about it on just a human level. One of the favorite things for my family to do right now in the midst of this quarantine is to watch The Voice. We, we love that show. And uh, we, we sit down and we watch it. Every time we watch it, I'm reminded of, of how untalented I am, right? I'm just like marvel at how incredible these people are. And, and that is the gift. The gift of singing is one that I really envy, right? And so I watch it, and I think, man, I, I would give anything if I could sing like that. And clearly I'm not alone because they've made a TV show out of it, and a lot of people marvel at it as well. And so we tend to rank that sort of gifting and, and desire it. Well, we start to do that within the church, and, and that can create some unhealth. So, so think of it this way. I, I think I've shared this with you all before, but what I've seen kind of progress in American Christianity is we got fixated on the gift of communication, right? So, so if we found somebody that could stand up and, and speak eloquently and tell a joke to make us laugh and tell a story to make us cry, man, we loved that. Or if we found somebody that was a gifted musician and could communicate through song, either through the songs they write or just the way that they sing, man, we loved that. And our whole church experience begin to focus in and centralize on the gift of communication. Now, the problem with that was kind of uh, multi-layered, right? On on one level, the reason that's problematic is, again, when you rank giftings, it creates envy and it creates pride. And and those can create challenges. And so a lot of times we found people uh, with the gift of communication in certain scenarios all of a sudden be entrusted with leadership. And, and though they were great communicators, they didn't have all the other giftings necessary for leadership. Void of integrity, void of wisdom, void of discernment, void of mercy. And all of a sudden, you have the wrong people leading, and that can become very destructive. But perhaps even more catastrophic is not so much those problems of failed leadership, but the times that we've seen as a result of a veneration of the gift of communication, we've seen people diminish the gifts of other parts of the body of Christ. Right? And so all of a sudden, we either don't give a venue for people to practice their other gifts, or people don't see them as significant, and so they don't practice them, and they become 
consumers and they envy and they watch. And in reality, what we're missing and what we're creating is disharmony within the body of Christ, not unity and stunted growth, right? Because we've, we've missed how important it is to celebrate somebody who has the gift of encouragement, right? And how vital that is to the body of Christ or somebody that has the gift of mercy, right, and, and the way that they continually promote that in the body of Christ, or those people that, that are just the backbone of a church who, who faithfully serve and never get recognition, right? Those are the, the gifts that need to always be practiced and celebrated, so that really creates unity and harmony and leads you to continued growth. And so we have to have a full appreciation of those gifts and, and guard against a focus of ranking one over the other. And so give consideration to what God has gifted you to do. Now, part of what I want us to see here is that when God has given you a gift, it it creates a sense of self-fulfillment, right? That when you finally live a life worthy of the calling you've received, using the gifts that God has equipped you with, it creates a tremendous sense of fulfillment, right? But, But that's not why you do it, right? We're not practicing these gifts, excuse me, got it, just so that we can, (laughs) just so that we can feel better about ourselves, right? We're practicing these gifts for a reason. That's what takes us back to this focus list that we see in Ephesians 4. He is referencing apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, because these are gifts that help equip. That's the word he uses, equip. And so, That word literally means to, to train, to prepare. But what I loved about it in studying it was that it is often used in the medical world for setting a broken bone or in, in the, the fishing world of like mending a broken net. And so part of what equipping does is it helps something function the way it's supposed to. And so it makes sense, right? The apostles and prophets, they reveal the mystery of Christ. Uh, the evangelists proclaim the mystery of Christ from town to town, village to village, region to region. That the pastors shepherd and cultivate, protect and encourage a congregation. And then the, the teachers help remind people, of, here's how you practice these gifts, right? They're helping equip the body. But all of us, what do we do, right? We are equipped for what? Works of service. I love this, right? Now, all of this is our pursuit towards maturity, right? So keep that in mind. Works of service. That's why God has gifted you. The word work, if, you, if we break down this phrase, the word work is, is implying more than just like a vocation, right? So this isn't the idea of, man, this is my obligation, this is my nine to five, I gotta clock in and clock out. It, this is a word that speaks to active zeal. This is passion, right? I'm zealous for this work. And what, are, what am I zealous to do? What, am I, what do I have this zeal and this passion for? For service. Now, this is such a countercultural expression of Christianity, right? The, the, the word that's used for service comes from a literal word that means to serve at a table, like to wait on at a table. And, and that would not have been highly esteemed in, in Greek culture at this time, right? That, that if you were a part of this culture, you knew that you wanted to be sitting at the table, being served, not the one serving the table. And Jesus, knowing this, completely flips it on his head. L- listen to how he instills a different model for his disciples. Luke 22, verse 27, he asked the question, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? He knows exactly 
what culture is implying, what they're thinking, what they're going to suggest, but then look at how he flips it. But I'm among you as one who serves. This being shared in a moment where he, he literally washes their feet after a lifetime of, of demonstrating <clears throat> that sort of uh, practice of servanthood. Right? And so Jesus is saying that the way in which you use these gifts, the way in which you, you participate in this community is through service. And so then in Matthew 25, he gives this description of the least of these, right? To, to take care of those who are hungry, to give a drink to those who are thirsty, to visit those who are in prison. And when you do so, you're not only doing it for the least of these, you're also doing it for him. And so the overarching message is that the gifts that God has given you is so that you can come to the church and live a life of servanthood, right? It's a life of service in, in every capacity. I came across this quote uh, from John Calvin that I think is so wonderful that really kind of summarizes all of it. It says, if we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. Can I say that again? <clears throat> I love it. If we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. So whoever you are, whatever God has gifted you to do, you should have this zealous work mindset that allows you to go and say, I'm gonna take these gifts, I'm gonna take this, this passion, these purposes, and I'm gonna do it to benefit others. That, that's the whole motivation. That's why God has given this grace accordingly. Now, what happens when we do it? We reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, right? So, so that's the pursuit, right? If we see this grace and we understand it and we're zealous for it and we do this work of service and we understand our giftings, then that leads us to unity and maturity. Now, from here, Having established how you pursue this maturity, Paul then gives us a picture of what this maturity looks like. And he does it again through a contrast of immaturity, immaturity. So when we do this, we won't be like infants, he says, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there. Uh, that language creates this picture of instability. The, the phrase for blown here and there is literally swung around. It's used for spinning tops and feeling dizzy. Right, so the picture he's creating is this instability. And, and the word for infant, I think, really helps bring it together because you think about an infant and, and what they're trying to do is they, they can't make sense of the world. They can't make sense of relationships. And so they just do what, what they're told more or less. They go here, they go there. They're, they're looking for anything to guide them, right? And so that's the picture of immaturity, this, this unstable, impulsive nature. And what drives that immaturity is every crafty, cunning, deceitful scheme, right? And when we read a verse like that, it should serve as a reminder and a word of caution to each of us that the darkness is gonna do everything it can to lead us astray, right? So we have to recognize that, that we live in a society, we live in a culture where voices are constantly competing for our hearts and for our attention. And, and I think that's really important for us to, to be mindful of today because it is harder and harder, more and more difficult for us to really understand and discern what is true, right? Who to trust, who to listen to, what to follow. I mean, think, think about all the different things that we hear. We, we live in a climate now that is built upon that, that phrase, fake news, 
right, where everything can be cast aside as propaganda or an agenda or an attack. And so we're constantly bombarded with so much information and so many accusations, it's really hard to know what is trustworthy. And, and this pandemic has proven once again just how easy misinformation can occur. There have been, been, been numerous stories that have gone viral and have gotten a lot of momentum, though they've been false. Uh, a couple that I came across in researching this this week was that at one point it was rumored that lions were patrolling the streets in Russia to help keep people indoors. Uh, that was not true, right? And yet that got momentum. There was a clip of a tank in Italy that was reported of being in place to help respond to protest and enforce the lockdown, when in reality, that video was taken from a military training exercise. We, we saw something similar in our own country. Uh, there was footage of, of these tanks being delivered to San Diego, and this, this clip went viral, and people were saying, here's the government getting ready to enforce a lockdown in California, when in reality, that video and that footage of those tanks being delivered to San Diego came from 2017 and yet we were reporting it in 2020. Uh, my favorite bit of disinformation is that the coronavirus is a human creation sponsored by Bill Gates. That's one of the better ones that I've come across as well. So the point is, it is incredibly difficult for us to know what is true. And we have all these different voices, not just in society, but in the church, that constantly try to pull us astray. Now the problem with that is that as soon as you have a truth problem, you have a trust problem. And when you have a trust problem, that creates an anger problem. Because now when people aren't trustworthy, then they become a threat, right? And, and so all of a sudden, they become people that represent falsehood or accusations. And so now I need to resent them because they're, they're gonna go ahead and try to lead me astray. They're gonna promote lies and all these other things. And this, this creates this response of hatred, creates a response of finger pointing, name calling, and disdain. And so now we seem to have an anger problem as well. But what's really unfortunate for us is that we're living in a society that really has both, a truth problem and an anger problem. And the reason that becomes so problematic is because we don't really know how to fix it. We tend to focus on one and course correct there to the neglect of the other. Right, so, so we'll, we'll see that there's a truth problem and all these lies are being spread and so people become very focused on proclaiming truth, so to speak, and they almost become militant in the way that they do it. And the way that they present truth becomes kind of this scorched earth policy. If you don't believe me, then you must be against me, you must be an enemy, and the way that truth is presented is incredibly destructive. Or people look and see that there's an anger problem, right? And so they're so just frustrated by the way people are being hurt and all the name calling that they just say, man, we're just gonna do love, but they see truth as being offensive. And so now we're just gonna let everybody have their own truth. I'm gonna have my truth, you have your truth. Let's just not disrupt one another. Let's just love one another. And that, that kind of illogical, irrational way of thinking leads people to choosing and believing in the behavior that is very destructive, right? And so we have the tension on both sides and we see this within the church how we treat each other across denominations, sometimes how we treat each other within a congregation itself. And so what we begin to recognize is that that creates a tremendous amount of immaturity and instability where division is created, disharmony is created, and nobody is really growing and functioning. And so if there was ever a time for the church to understand what maturity looks like, it's now. And that's why Paul gives us this picture rather than succumbing to all of that, instead, be mature. Right? This word means to be fully grown. 
right? Somebody that's a full-grown adult is not like an infant trying to figure out which way to go. The decision-making, the reason, the wisdom is all in place. And what does that maturity look like? It looks like speaking the truth in love. And I love that phrase. That's it, church, right? Speaking the truth in love. The word for speaking here is not confined to verbalization. It's how we live, right? It's, it's matched with conduct. It's matched with deeds. That's how we begin to practice this sort of maturity, speaking the truth in love. And so what is the truth that is the anchor for all seasons and circumstances? The truth is Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. That's the truth that we never sway from, right? We never diminish his reign. We never diminish his authority. We never diminish any sort of idea that that the earth is not culminating towards him and towards his glory, right? That he came to, to suffer and die for the forgiveness of sins, and not only that, to conquer over death itself so that all of us can face disease, can face a pandemic, can face an economic collapse, can face whatever it is, and know that the victory still belongs to Jesus Christ, that there will be a day where no more suffering, no more pain, no more hardship exists, and we get to be with him forever. That is the truth. But as believers, we are called to embody that truth in love. Love. The greatest of these is love. So how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, your mind? You love your neighbor as yourself. Right? You, you understand the grace that God has given you and the gifts that he has entrusted to you. And you use them not for yourself, but for the benefit of others. Right? That we can do works of service. And so when we go out and we serve and we impact and we engage, what we're doing is we are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ through a life of love. And when we do that, we become a church that is invincible, a church that is united, a church that is mature. Because each of us does our own part, does our own work in love. Will you do yours? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And I pray, God, that you would help us live into these words of instruction that we find in the sacred text. God, that is spirit-breathed and is life-giving. God, that we would not only aspire to the unity that we have looked at before, God, but today to fully understand what it means to be mature in our pursuit of you. Father, knowing that now more than ever, this world needs a voice to rise up and to continue to declare the truth that we have in Christ, but to do so in love. So Father, give us that wisdom. Give us that maturity. Help us to love you with heart, soul, and mind. Help us to love neighbor as ourself, that we would be known for our love that leads to your precious truth. We thank you, Father, and we pray all these things in your sacred and in your holy name. Amen.